China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by special co-host Andrew Polk, a senior associate at the Freeman Chair and the co-founder and head of economic research at Trivium China. Our guest for this episode is Barry Knott, the Soquan Luck Chair in Chinese International Affairs at the University of California, San Diego. Today we'll be discussing China's evolving approach to economic management and planning, as explored in Barry's recent article on what he calls Grand Steerage. Barry, thanks for joining the podcast. Hi, Jude. Thanks. It's great to be here. Hi, Andrew. So before we start, I just wanted to ask a question about context for writing the piece. Can you talk a little bit about when you put pen to paper, what were the questions that you were trying to explore here? Or what were the dynamics that you were noticing in China that, that, that made you approach this question? Of course, I've been looking at the transition process in China for many decades, this long-term process where most of the time the Chinese government has been stepping back and allowing market forces and private businesses to play a greater, greater role. And starting at about 2005, 2006, we started to observe this gradual, very gradual shift where the impetus toward marketization had slowed down and government seemed to be increasingly willing to intervene. And this process has just been stepping up and accelerating over the last few years. Now, the impetus for this particular piece was this very interesting conference that that was held up at Stanford where people were looking at the future of China. And I felt that people were being far too incremental In other words, they were sort of saying, oh, China's going to look somewhat like it has the last 20 or 30 years, but but a little more this and a little less that. And I thought, hmm, I actually disagree a little bit. I think there's a there's a sense of change in China which is going to push the system in new directions that we haven't seen before, that they really want to move towards something qualitatively new. And I decided to call that grand steerage. That's where this article came from. I thought for listeners who don't follow the economic reform process as closely as you do, I wonder if you could give kind of a potted history, taking us from the late 1970s up until about the time that you began to see the emergence of this great steerage model in in the mid or late 2000s. One of your early books was called Growing Out of the Plan, which captured in a nice way how China was moving, transitioning from a more top-down status command and control approach to something else. But it's, it's likely a more complicated story of just moving quickly from central planning to a clear market economy. So can you talk a little bit about some of the frameworks or paradigms that, that China went through from this period of the late 1970s to the mid-2000s? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to think of the first you know, decade or so of, of this transition process as really being driven by problems. I mean, the end of the 70s, China was worried about having enough food to feed its people. And so they were sort of forced to liberalize the agricultural sector. But then when they did, they discovered this tremendous surge of productivity as farmers gained control over their land and and produced more. And in a way, that model can be extended to lots of other sectors over the next 20, 30 years. They'd see a problem and they'd liberalize. And that liberalization would would induce a productive response. And so, you know, they really seem to be behaving sort of rationally responsive for many decades up until the early 2000s. 
And then as the growth slowed, inevitably, you really saw them looking for what they call new growth drivers. It's like, how can we move out of this passive uh, acceptance of, of economic forces and really drive a new set of changes? And that ambition has just accelerated since about 2005, 2006. The late 1990s through the early 2000s and the accession to the WTO seemed to indicate that China had really solidified the market vision. You had also at the political level, things like the three represents. So you saw an ideological opening up or tolerance of market actors in the political system, as well as allowing market forces to be operative in, in the economy. And we're going to talk about how that wasn't as, as thick of a, as a consensus as I thought. But I wonder if you can just, returning to that early 2000s period, did they begin to rethink a more market-based model because they were seeing problems emerge or, or that this old formula of sort of liberalization was a way to get a productive response was just no longer getting traction? What, what was the, on the eve of the grand steerage, what, what was the state of thinking on, on economic policy? I don't think there was any um, rejection of the market reform model. Rather, it was the sense that, just as you said, all right, we've, we've, we've got to this new normal. We've got, you know, a roughly functioning market economy. We've remade some of the rules. We've got the financial system more or less on track. Now, let's do the other things that have been pushed to one side. So on the one hand, they started rebuilding the welfare system, but then on the other hand, they started saying, let's really ramp up our science and technology policy so that we're going to be riding the waves of new technologies. And remember, this was even before, you know, you really had this awareness of AI and 5G and, you know, the kind of things that we see right now as being central to the to the new technology wave, that didn't happen until, what, 2014, something around that time, 2013, 2014. But you already saw before that the idea to say, well, we've got a market economy, now let's lay on top of that a much more activist role for the state to drive the growth process forward. I think now's a good time to actually ask you to lay out the the big argument here. And I, sh I should have noted at the top that the the article in question we're going to be talking about is from a really fantastic edited volume uh, called Fateful Decisions, Choices That Will Shape China's Future, which came out last year, which has just a, a who's who of, of eminent scholars thinking through the challenging issues of, of the problems and, and possible solutions that China will turn to in the coming decades as it, as it faces domestic and international issues. So your essay is just simply called Grand Steerage. So I guess in a nutshell, what is grand steerage? What is it as a, as a vision? What problems is grand steerage trying to solve? And what are some of the constituent components or parts of it? Fair notice. It's not a, a word the Chinese use. So it's just a, a word I made up to describe this new activism on the part of the government. And certainly the prerequisite for it is that the Chinese government has a lot of money now, a lot of resources. The budgetary crisis years of the 1990s are long over. True, there are some short-run problems this year, last year, because of COVID and other things. But, but generally speaking, the Chinese government feels that it has ample resources to shift the direction of the economy, and in particular, to take advantage of an emerging technological revolution. So it's spending money on the foundation of a market economy in order to rebuild China's infrastructure and take advantage of these 
new technological changes in order to steer China into a predominant place in the global economy. I'm curious, um, one of the I think operative assumptions by many outside of observers in the reform and opening period was that a socialist ideological vision for the economy or a vision infused in planning that we'd seen in, in the Mao era had, had evaporated or, or dissipated. And I, I'm sure in a, in, a, in a Maoist sense that that's true. We, we weren't probably seeing a Maoist vision in economic policy or in this grand steerage. But I wanted to ask you, do you see a, an ideological component in the grand steerage project, either a socialist or, or otherwise, in terms of a, a sort of a teleological endpoint it's trying to, to reach, or in some of the methods or means uh, utilized in the grand steerage, or is this just simply a technocratic you know, wealth and power vision uh, for China? That's a great question. And it's a little bit hard to answer because at the same time that the party has adopted this grand steerage model, they've also sort of revised their understanding of what has happened over the previous 30, 40 years to kind of claim that wise party vision is what steered the transition process from the beginning, which is, you know, simply not true. And so they're not in the business of sort of clarifying exactly what the underpinnings and purpose and philosophy of this this policy is. I think it's more technocratic than it is socialist, certainly. But it also, uh, I think it brings on a very strong, almost paternalistic sense that the Communist Party has this responsibility to guide and shape the evolution of the Chinese people. Of course, it goes along with a, a push, as you know, a, an anti-poverty push, but that sits very uncomfortably on the other elements of Grand Steerage, which are really are urban and high-tech. It's a hard question to answer. I don't think we have a, I don't think we really know the full answer to that. Barry, let me step in here with a, a couple of questions as well. First, Jude, thanks for letting me join the discussion today and co-host the podcast with you. And, and thanks, Barry, for for joining us. This is a, an excellent discussion. And I, I the paper, I can't really recommend that listeners go read enough. What I love about the idea of grand, grand steerage is that you lay it out clearly as an evolution of economic policy and economic thinking. So often when people look at what's happening in China today, they see, see a resurgence of the state and almost argue as if China is sort of going back to the planned economy. But you've already mentioned a couple of times that this new policy is really coming on top of the base of a market economy. So can you just explain a little bit more about how grand steerage comes on top of rather than being a replacement for market forces per se? When we think of you know, the old style of planning, you know, we think of, of planners sort of issuing quantitative commands to ensure that scarce goods like steel or something got delivered to their priority users. That's just an incredibly primitive model compared to what China is thinking of today. They don't do that. They don't do it at all. And they're not going back there. So the model today is one, it, you know, in a way, it's, it's, it's really a Silicon Valley influence model. You have lots and lots of government investment funds. These investment funds, they invest on their own account. They also subsidize investments by private parties. They expect that they will make many failed investments. Again, this is a sort of venture capital model. They invest in 10 projects, nine of them fail, but that 10th project is 
nurtured and grown up to become a, a national champion. So it's really using abundant government resources to make sure that the there's plenty of financing and skills available for the direction that you want the economy to go. So it, it's, you know, in their mind, there absolutely is no contradiction between this and the fundamental institutions of a market economy. Even if the government loses money, they figure we've got the money to lose, and if we set the economy on the right trend, then it's worth it. One of the points you touched on that I also wanted to follow up on is this idea of China's resources, right? You've already talked a couple of times around how the state planning model was really one born of managing scarcity, putting scarce resources in the right or what was seen to be the right places, whereas Grand Steerage is really a model of abundance. And that, one, means that the policy starts from a very different place than an old economic planning model. And two, it really brings in this question that you also touched on, which is the question of waste. And so I'd just like for you to explain a little bit more about this idea that China's really, it's committing a lot of resources, of course, but it has those resources. And then follow up on that by addressing this question of, you know, how much waste can this program withstand going forward? It's funny, when you talk to some of the people who are involved in industrial policy, they freely admit, oh yeah, the first iteration of electric vehicle policy was a huge failure and we wasted, you know, up to $100 billion. Semiconductor policy so far, you know, hasn't been very successful. We've, we've wasted $100 billion. And then you say, well, does that mean that industrial policy has failed? They'll say, no, no, not at all. Everybody, you know, there are costs. You can't get it right every time. This is just part of the process. And so they're, they're willing to, to lose money. And they're also willing to come in behind private firms that have already demonstrated their success. You know, they're willing to say, okay, you, you proved that you were right. We, we didn't believe you at first, but now we see you are. Now we're sort of in for stage three financing or we're in for the, you know, the listing of your firm on the, on the market. And now we're your supporter. So, so it's this very, very flexible approach. Certainly there are associated financial risks. The biggest risk is that you get, you know, zombie projects, that you get uh, firms and, and technologies that don't fit into the obvious success or obvious failure package. And then there are political reasons why you don't want to pull the plug on it. And then you have, you know, risk building up in the financial system. I, I, I think that's a very, very important and potentially a big problem. But they're also aware of that. And so it's, it's not like it's going to blindside them. The political imperatives might lead them to it anyway, but it's certainly not going to catch them napping. How do you think they measure success in this grand steerage slash VC model? We're pretty good as outside observers of taking note of waste. Um, we're pretty good uh, it, it, within the Chinese system. Again, I think most of the analysis on China just looks at one side of the balance sheet. We just typically can rack and stack the liabilities, but we're not too good about understanding the other side, which is you know, metaphorically the assets. But I also wonder for Chinese economic planners and for the senior leadership, how would they know that a, a grand steerage system or an approach to this new kind of marketized industrial policy through government guidance funds, how would they know when it's, when it's working well? Are they looking at, you, you know, you laid out this idea of a VC style model, but of course, venture capitalists 
don't have resource abundance. They're, they're very aware of scarcity and they have pledges to their LPs and, and their other partners and investors. That's what constrains the vision. And that's what keeps them from betting on a thousand bad projects as opposed to 10. How do you think that the party thinks about that? I think the party has a, almost a wave-like model. You know, I think they think there's, it, they're not bubbles, they're sort of waves of exuberance that lead to proliferating investments. And then they, they say, okay, we're going to have to step in and, and, and retrench. We'll take a few lessons from the supply-side economic reforms that were so, so widely talked about in 2016 and are still talked about today, as you know. And we'll sort of come in and the government will help retrench. And then after that full cycle, if we look at it and it looks like there's a new industry created and the amount of losses were not too great, then we think we did okay and we'll be ready for another phase, another cycle. I think that's how this is. What drives the acknowledgement that a wave has crested, that you've kind of seen the, the crashing of a wave? I remember Andrew was in Beijing as well. We were living there at the the heady times of the bike rentals where it was clear the wave had crested because you couldn't walk on the sidewalk. You had to walk way out in the street to get around the piles of bikes. So it was clear that that wave had crested. But I mean this more from a resource management perspective. I take your point about it's more of a, you know, like grading, you know, a B when you, when you see it. But I wonder if at NDRC or in the, you know, the bowels of PBOC, are they thinking about this in slightly more sort of empirically minded, or do you think it's just a matter of, we know the wave is crested when it's crested? I imagine there probably are some of both. I think there probably are indicators of the first type, but they are kept very tightly under wraps. I mean, we know that there was a reassessment of the Strategic Emerging Industries Program a couple of years ago. We know that the assessment was certainly not, you know, rose-colored glasses. They were pretty unhappy with the way strategic emerging industries had been developed from 2010 to 2015, but they never released, you know, the specific indicators they used. We do see, you know, there was a revised version that came out in 2016, I think. So we know they made changes, but no, we don't, we don't see the internal mechanics of that. I wish we did. I think it'd be, it'd be fascinating. We know right now there's, there's such a crackdown going on, on on semiconductor firms. The excess entry in 2019 and 2020 was so out of hand, they're, they're clearly cracking down now. Speaking of metrics for success, which are obviously driven by the government, and speaking of the sort of venture capital model, which is largely driven by government-funded investment funds, you speak in the piece around how the private sector plays into this grand steerage model. And just with so much focus on the role of the private sector in China these days, I think it's probably worth a little bit of time to also expound a bit on, on how you see the private sector playing into grand steerage. Well, for sure. I mean, and, you know, Alibaba is, is a huge player in many different elements of this. So we've been talking mainly about the sort of technological thrust but of course, there's also this very important infrastructure thrust, and, and the two things go together, especially when you think about smart infrastructure. When you think about smart cities, who's the, one of the world's leaders? Alibaba, uh, City Brain program uh, is uh, in Hangzhou. It's also been exported to Kuala Lumpur and other places. 
So that here's a company that has exactly the human expertise that the Chinese government wants. So it's definitely willing to to work hand in glove with Alibaba, and Alibaba is clearly willing to work with the Chinese government. Who knows where the limits are? Obviously, as your listeners know well, lately, you know, the relations between Jack Ma and Chinese Communist Party have been a little bit rocky. So you know, we don't quite know the bottom of that. But clearly, there's a role for private companies, and the party wants to bring them close in this steerage enterprise. And it's it's in their benefit, and I think they're, generally speaking, happy to cooperate. One of the you know central discussions for policymakers in Washington, D.C., but I also think in other developed market capital economies like in Brussels, in Berlin, in Ottawa, in Canberra, is this clear recognition that the Communist Party has blurred the lines between or the demarcations between public and private. And that takes a various, you know, myriad uh, instantiations that could be party cells, you know, that could be the crackdown on on Alibaba and the, you know, the Perry Link kind of the boa constrictor and the chandelier model of even if you don't have de jure control, you know, kill the chicken to scare the monkey enough and you've got de facto control. You know, thinking through, you know, Andrew's question on what's the role of the private sector, I want to ask you, what does this mean for external observers where we have a regulatory and legal infrastructure that in many ways depends on being able to have clear-ish demarcations? Are we looking to see this trend of blurring, and in fact, maybe even more than that, a kind of a soft de facto nationalization or partyization? Is that the natural outcome here if we continue with this with this grand steerage project, especially under the current administration, which has a very you know party first view of political economy? I think yes, it's very worrisome to me. I can't see the basis for sort of level playing field competition, not only because the party does have so many channels for steerage in particular cases, but also because part of this model implies multiple, multiple channels of financial subsidization for companies that are national champions. So we're basically looking at a model where China puts forward its national champions and says, these are very capable, competitive economies that we subsidize richly and in whose board of directors you know, we have representatives. So I, I think it's a huge challenge. We certainly can't assume that this is normal competition. I don't think we've got the answer yet of how we respond to this. Now that we've laid out a lot of the key details of Grand Steerage as you outline it, I, I do want to step back again and just ask, you know, we're talking about these grand, I won't use the word plans because we're saying we're getting away from planning, but these grand frameworks on how the economy should work. Who's driving this policy? You know, it's, as you note in the piece, China's economy is such a large, complex place. It's going to be hard to even monitor and judge success nationwide. You almost have to do it industry by industry. But is there a central idea or a central person driving this idea in this program? And if so, what are the intellectual kind of lineage of, of the program? I mean, of course, everything in China today is, is Xi Jinping in some sense. It's, it's all Xi all the time. So clearly this corresponds to, to his vision. But, but as we also know, you know, Xi's a real political thinker. He's not that much of an economic thinker. 
And so we repeatedly see that in economic issues, he turns to his primary trusted advisor, who is Liu He. Now, if we ask, does Liu He's background and views, are they consistent with this program of grand steerage? And the answer is absolutely, 100%. I mean, Liu He came up through the planning commission. He was very clear in the 1990s that what the planning commission was trying to do failed, that that old style of industrial policy didn't work. So we know he's been looking around for something different. We also know that he believes, as many Chinese do, in the idea that there are periods when technological revolution coincides with global restructuring. Right? They have this almost, to me it has a little bit of a, of a feel of utopianism, you know, that there are waves of technological change, and when you seize that wave, then you ride it to global dominance. So it's very common to hear people in China say that the U.S. rode a wave of technological change during World War II to global dominance in 1945. Liu He believes that. He's written about it. And so he definitely shares the vision of steerage. Does he also share the vision of a market economy that you know, leaves most decisions, and especially smaller ones, up in the hands of individual, private, you know, dispersed decision makers? Absolutely. And he even is regularly associated with policies that are a little bit tougher in a macroeconomic sense, deleveraging, supply-side structural reform. All of these things are key components of the overall grand steerage push. So I think although Liu He himself stays very understated, obviously he's going to give all the credit to the great leader Xi Jinping himself. But if we poke a little, we can see Liu He's hand definitely in the overall shaping of this, I, I believe. Barry, I wanted to just toss out a thought and, and see what you think of it. Andrew and I were talking the other night on the phone about in the area of governance, there are no other significant global powers that think as much about the future of governance as does the Communist Party under Xi Jinping. I think there's no other political system, country, or regime that thinks as much about the role of technology as a factor to incorporate into governance, as well as, I, I think under Xi Jinping, they think technology can solve every problem they face, whether that's demographics, productivity, you name it, there's a technological fix. And that may be a problem, we can talk about that. But in hearing you talk right now, I actually think I'd add a third element here. I think China, in this perennial debate of, you know, is the world gonna change China or China change the world? It seems to me that really China is the pace setter for economic policy too. And, and I mean that we can, you know, obviously we're not gonna all have one party Leninist systems, but in terms of the vision of grand steerage, in terms of industrial policy, in terms of a, a kind of a hybrid market-based industrial policy, in terms of incorporating concerns over national security into thinking about economic policy and globalization and, and supply chains, China has really been the pace setter. And we seem to be grudgingly coming to many of the same diagnoses and prescriptions that they do in our own way, in our own, you know, in our own language, in, our, in the context of our own you know, political discourse. This is a Joe Scarborough, Morning Joe sort of question where I pontificate for five minutes and then just turn to you and say, what do you think? But I will do that. How does that strike you as a, as a non-normative statement? I'm not saying this is how I want the world to be, 
But the United States isn't setting the pace for how we think about the internet, how we think about surveillance, how we think about AI. And indeed, we're having an early malformed discussion of do we need industrial policy here in the United States? Why? Because of China. I agree with that, but I think I would bring in more of the normative. That is, there's a positive and a negative normative component where the negative normative component is because China is so focused on security, national control, and national competition, it naturally forces other countries to do the same. That's a a welfare loss for the whole world, I think, but it's inevitable. You know, my speculation is China's electricity grid and telecom grid are way more secure than the U.S.'s uh, electricity and telecom grids. Obviously, we have to do better on a security sense and probably on an industrial policy and a data sense as well. So, yes, I agree they're driving change, but in a way that they're driving change in part because maybe we accepted too easily the idea there would be a single global Internet, we'd all be in it together, and now it's clear that's not going to happen. Can I just follow up on that a little bit, Barry, to ask, do you see the development of grand steerage as a framework, as a reaction primarily to domestic constraints, or is there an element of reacting to the external environment as well? Is it a combination of the two? I believe that it's more of a development of domestic forces in China. I mean, of course, since for the last two years or so, you know, with this counterattack from the Trump administration, obviously the response has been to ramp up industrial policy and ramp up the securitization of everything. But I think we really see the movement in this direction coming from China itself autonomously. Of course, I'm sure Xi Jinping would argue it was inevitable that our rise would trigger a response from the Americans. It's a Thucydides trap and everything. But I, you know, I don't think that's how, how the decision was made. One Chinese friend suggested to me that it's actually a, surprisingly a kind of muddling through outcome. That in other words, you had sort of a let's push forward with market-based reform camp and you had a leftist you know, no, let's go back to, you know, more state control camp. And then in the middle, you had people kind of like Leo Hu saying, no, no, we, we want the market economy, but we can add on to that. And so, look, everybody can be happy if we do this. I mean, it's funny in a way, because now you have really almost a, a utopian cast to some of this, you know, just the feeling that this is a wave that's going to change everything and we're riding on it. To, so to say that this is a middle of the road, you know, keep everybody happy outcome seems really paradoxical. But I think there's at least an element of truth in it, that it did derive from Chinese domestic sources as they reached a point where they're saying, okay, now we're, we're there, we're getting there, now what? Take your point on the metal through scenario, but the flip side of that also is something that we spoke about just before the podcast and touched on a little bit, which is also, though, in some ways, I think from the outside, we don't always see how the sort of statist versus market pushes in many Chinese policymakers' minds are not contradictory in the way that they are in our minds. Do you think that plays into this story as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in a way, a lot of Chinese policymakers were surprised at the pushback they got from the early stages of industrial policy. They're like, isn't this what we always do? We're always 
pushing for economic development, and this is just economic development in the new era, isn't it? And then outsiders would say, well, no, actually, when you joined WTO, you made certain commitments to not do this. You know, they're definitely not a meeting of the minds on those issues. Can we, Barry, spend the, the last few minutes just talking about where does this model go? And I think there's a couple of questions I wanted to ask, but to start out with, this model, as you were just saying, has provoked, whether fairly or unfairly, some pretty significant pushback globally. And, and it transcends just the Trump administration and Peter Navarro and Steve Bannon. You would find the same discussions or frustrations in, in many capitals around the world. I was reading over the weekend a paper by Avery Goldstein in International Security about China's grand strategy. And he ends it by saying, has the Xi project kind of planted the seeds for its own international constraint? I also read a recent paper by Kelly Tsai, which was arguing much the same thing, that this state capitalist, this muscular state capitalist model from China has provoked this pushback, which again, constrains China's international operating environment, its investment environment, it's bound to have an effect on inbound investment. So how sustainable is this model? And, and I think really what I, I'm getting at is if it's premised on this idea of abundance, the assumption of or the actual existence of resource abundance, it seems to me that over the past several years, Chinese regulators and planners have recognized they're entering a, a new era of scarcity that is already having an effect on reining in Belt and Road investment, I think after 2015 and the equity market debacle, you see them much more careful with capital outflows. So in a shallow way, I look at this and I say, there's no way they can afford this moving forward and that they're going to have to start making tough choices. So again, a Joe Scarborough question, that statement put out there, how do you react to that? I agree. I mean, really, you, you were laying out you know, two or three intrinsic limiting factors. Right. So even if they think it works, they still have to do things very carefully, not waste billions and billions of dollars routinely. And they have to do something to come to terms with the rest of the world. So I think there are there are lots of problems. And so far, I think they can manage these problems. But you could easily imagine a need to step back. But it's hard to imagine Xi Jinping doing that. So in some ways, I think this is the classic case, sort of the authoritarian dilemma. It's like, yeah, authoritarian systems can be very efficient. But once you've got an authoritarian leader in there, it's pretty hard to put limits on them. And it's hard to see what limits would really affect the behavior of Xi Jinping. And in a way, isn't what's happening right now with Alibaba kind of evidence of the state going too far and really starting to have significantly undermine some of the confidence in private business circles? I'm not sure, but I suspect so. And just as a, a quick follow-up, your idea was comprised of two words, grand steerage. I suppose maybe we could imagine a future where steerage is the new operative sort of core of, of Chinese industrial policy and economic management, nudging and guardrails and incentives but moving more from a Andreessen Horowitz superscaled VC firm to a, a much more niche firm focused on, you know, one or two sectors or technologies. And I think the great lesson I learned from thinking about China in the post-Mao era is every time I think they're going to run into a cul-de-sac, they pull a rabbit out of the hat slash evolve, create a new model or some new framework to hop skip over the, I'll mix all my metaphors, the, the hurdle in the road. And I suspect the Chinese economy growing at 
2%, but at an extraordinarily large base, will think of a new way to guide economic activity. I agree with you. It just seems to me the not only domestically in China do I think the kind of vision for more unconstrained markets has run out of steam. I think, frankly, globally, there's much less appetite now for allowing unconstrained market forces to rip and run. And we're all thinking about ways that we will manage economic growth in, in ways that are either welfare maximizing or because of this security competition, ensure that we have our own six, seven, eight G industries because it, it's too precious to leave up to the vagaries of the market. Yeah, that's right. And I guess the, the one other thing to bring in as part of that discussion is so far, it doesn't look like China has seen any really big productivity gains from this, this series. They've been quite successful in sort of creating new industries and, and, you know, moving toward the frontier and all that, but they're not getting any big productivity burst. But maybe, you know, when a grid of high speed transportation network, you know, gets laid down over the entire Pearl River Delta or the lower Yangtze, maybe all of a sudden we'll, we'll discover, hey, wait a minute, you know, they really have lower logistics costs and transportation costs and communication and, you know, put that with their existing strength in manufacturing, plus all these new robots and precision control flow, all of a sudden, you know, they're 10 and 20 percent jumps in productivity. Is that possible? It's possible. I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't say what happened, but it sure would bail them out of a lot of economic problems if they got that kind of surge of productivity growth. Of course, you could say the same for us, too. We, we don't see the productivity gains from all the new technologies around us yet either. So. Well, that's a great point. And I think maybe to, to sum up this discussion, I'd like to follow up on that a bit by saying, so one often, you know, productivity gains are lumpy, right? You invest and you invest invest. You invest and you invest and you invest, and then you get a big payback at some point. And what I love in the piece is that you really characterize Grand Steerage as a big gamble, that China is placing a big old bet on this new framework, and maybe it pays off and maybe it doesn't. Maybe they land somewhere in the middle. So given that you kind of characterize this next 10-year period as a gamble towards boosting productivity, one how long is this grand steerage approach sustainable? Is it kind of 10 years and this, this next 10 years is kind of do or die? It really will set the course for their next 50 years? So that's one part of the question. And then secondly, if this is not a sustainable program, what might influence grand steerage to alter or evolve in the coming years so that we can be on the lookout for oh, maybe they're starting to back away from this huge gamble that we thought they, they placed? Those are great questions that uh, I really wish I knew the answer to. <laughs> I don't. I suppose if it works, it'll be permanent. You know, I think we would see a almost a kind of, you know, world of tomorrow version in which a high-income economy with a large state is producing public projects on a regular basis, including, you know, space travel and, you know, all kinds of hard to imagine futuristic things. So it could be part of our permanent world. And I would expect that if vulnerabilities emerge, it would be persistent failure to get these big productivity gains, plus financial distress that ultimately emerges as too many optimistic bets have been made. 
just to push a little bit there, it sounds like you're saying that you do think because this is a big gamble, it kind of ends up quite successful or quite unsuccessful. Is there a middle ground? And of the sort of fully unsuccessful, fully successful and middle ground, where do you think we end up? I think, you know, I think logically there's absolutely no reason there couldn't be a middle ground, right? I mean, you just, uh, if you have a sort of wise and balanced policymaker who kind of says, okay, well, you know, mixed assessment, let's pull back here and, and, you know, enforce hard budget constraints here. There's absolutely no reason why that can't happen, except that world history tells us that people tend to, to overdo things. And uh, I don't have a whole lot of faith in Xi Jinping's willingness to sort of pull back, even if his economic advisor says it really is time to pull back. So I guess not on economic grounds, but on political grounds, I guess I would say I expect this system to overshoot and make some mistakes. Can I ask a final question, Barry? Are we painting this phenomenon as the product of the Xi Jinping administration? In other words, imagine a near-term future where for reasons of suddenly deciding he's, he's tired and weary at the 20th Party Congress, Xi Jinping decides to hang up his general secretary zip-up jacket. Does that open possibilities of new trajectories or is this running deeper in the programming of the Communist Party in the 21st century? Well, I think it certainly runs pretty deep in the Communist Party, but at the same time, my sense is that there's a lot of misgiving at the rate at which China is separating itself from the rest of the developed world. Perhaps compensated by the fact that things aren't going too badly with most developing countries. So I guess I would say the situation, I think, is probably more fluid than it looks. And that if, if she did step down for whatever reason, uh, at least that would open up possibilities. But who knows where they'd go. Well, Barry, thank you uh, very much for your time and, and thank uh, co-captain Andrew Polk as well as a busy business owner for taking time out for this discussion. Andrew, appreciate it. Uh, again, this comes from the really fantastic essay, Grand Steerage, from Fateful Decisions, Choices That Will Shape China's Future, available on your, I was going to say Amazon, but we're in a Amazon abstention period here at the Blanchett household. So Go to your, your next trusted uh, bookshop uh, book dealer to purchase this really fantastic book to read Barry's essay. Barry, thanks a lot. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.